Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Bjorn Lomborg. He is a man with uh, worldwide recognition, one of the most prominent voices in the global debate over climate change and the environment. He's the author of The Skeptical, Skeptical Environmentalist, which was a, a bestseller, and his commentaries may be found in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and many, many other uh, publications. He's a visiting professor at the Copenhagen Business School and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Uh, Time Magazine actually named him one of the 100 most influential people of the world uh, not not long ago. Um, He has a new book, just came out. It's entitled False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thank you for joining us. Mark, it's great to be here. All right. Well, now you begin with a portrait right off the bat of an example of the alarm that you're talking about, really, you know, at at, at ground level. A girl holding a sign saying, you'll die of old age, I'll die of climate change. Now, how widespread is this phenomenon among the young and where, where is it either in the world or in certain, certain areas, where is it most common? Yeah. So, Mark, this really is very, very common. Uh, I, I've got to say, you know, I'm, I, I'm a professor and I usually try to rely on statistics because when you rely on your own experiences, you know, oh, I know this uh, girl who said she was afraid or not. It really doesn't say anything. But actually, uh, uh, Washington Post did a survey of all American kids and they found that 57 percent of them are afraid of climate change. They're really worried about this. Uh, you know, uh, one uh, one girl said to them, uh, why should I study for a future I don't have? You know, the sense is that there is a realistic opportunity that I will not get to be an adult because of global warming, because of all the emissions that you've done. And that's, of course, what drives this sense of we got to do something about it. I understand that fear. But if it's not well founded, Clearly, we need to point that out. And as it turns out, and that's what my book is about, no, this is just simply wrong. This alarmism is simply unwarranted, but also, of course, terrible because it forces us to make bad choices. And just remember, it's not just young people who are worried. Uh, There was a recent survey uh, done by YouGov across 28 nations in the world. They found on average 
almost half the world's population now believes that climate change will likely lead to the extinction of the human race. We're not just talking about problems that will be extinct. Four out of 10 Americans believe that will be extinct, that it's likely will be extinct. That's just simply silly. Look, global warming is a real problem, but it's not the end of the world. The UN climate panel tells us that in about 50 years, so around 2075, the net negative impact from global warming will be equivalent of each one of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Remember, by 2075, the uh, UN Climate Panel believes that on average, the person in the world will be uh, 363% as rich as we are today. So much richer, almost four times as rich. 363% uh, is what will be compared to today. If we take the worst case outcome of their impact, namely 2%, we will instead be 355% as rich in 2075. Yeah, that's a problem. But look, it's not the end of the world. Actually, we'll still be much better, but slightly less better off. So the, the issue here isn't fear, really. It is irrational fear. It is fear exaggerated beyond all the facts. I mean, one, one simple thing one could say is, do you think that if we start seeing extinction, appearing on the horizon and people aren't going to do anything about it that, 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 that they're not as, as you put it they're not going to undergo adaptation what do they think will happen if what, what do they envision as the extinction begins that it's something it's it's so far out of control that we can't do anything about it anymore well, Mark, my sense is that that, uh, you know, what people are seeing here is more sort of an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. And, you know, the only thing we can do is send Bruce Willis up there and, and do something about it. And, and that really takes a concerted action. It's not enough to just do your own thing just to adapt. You really need to have the whole world change. Now, if that was true, if there really was a, uh, a meteor hurtling towards Earth, we should possibly drop everything else just throw everything in the kitchen sink at this problem. But that's not what the UN climate panel tells us. They tell us this is a problem. It is a 0.2 to 2% problem by 2075. It's probably uh, less than 4% problem by 2100. What that means is if you can fix a substantial part of it, you should probably be willing to spend almost 4%. But you should certainly not be willing to spend 10 or 20 or 40% of your income to combat a tiny part of a two to 4% problem. That's the real issue here is that we're so scared that we don't get a sense of what's the proportional response. And one impact of that, of course, is that we fail to remember all the other problems that are out there. You know, COVID being one of them, uh, clearly, you know, the World Health Organization for the last 10 years has spent a large part of their time telling us Global warming is the biggest health problem in the world. And suddenly Corona came around. Uh, and, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why they were a little blindsided by this. Again, it doesn't mean we can't do several things. I mean, we're smart creatures. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. But we have to be careful that we don't just focus on climate and focus badly on it and forget all the other issues. Part of the irrationality and the disproportion is a... Uh a neglect of all the good news that we've seen in life and health in the past, in the past 50 years, 
and according to, as you, as you put it, in terms of prosperity, all the projections. Give me some examples of the good news that one might say immediately in response to an alarmist. Well, I mean, the obvious thing is that we just have much, much more time here on, on planet Earth. The average life expectancy in 1900 was 32 years of age. Uh, last year, it was 72. We have more than t two lives, each one of us, because of health care, because of better medical technology, because of better uh, nutrition, many, many other things. And the UN expects that by the end of the century, we're likely to grace about 100 years on average. So the idea here is we're not seeing a situation where we're all going extinct. We'll actually live longer, more meaningful lives. And just to you know, prevent that sense, some people fear, oh, are we just going to live more lives in, uh, in, in poor uh, health and you know, basically live really, really uh, deplorable lives? No, actually, we seem to have about the same amount of disease, but we have more and more healthy life years before we get very deceased. So this is a phenomenal outcome. This is also true, as you pointed out, in income. I said, uh, you know, the UN Climate Panel expect that by the end of the century, we'll be at least four times richer, possibly even 10 times richer per person on this planet. Uh, we'll have more food. We'll probably have better health. We'll, sorry, we certainly will have better health. We'll probably also have better environmental health. We'll have fixed indoor air pollution, which used to be the world's biggest uh, environmental problem. We'll probably also fix much of outdoor air pollution because that's a poverty issue. And it's also likely that we'll have fixed many other problems, like, for instance, uh, deforestation, which is mostly a poverty-related issue. So, again, it's important to recognize that fundamentally, life in 2100 will be much better. Now, we can make it even better by also fixing climate change. But what we should not do is put us on a path where we'd be much worse off because we're so over worried about global warming that we forgot about all the other issues and forgot about tackling climate smartly. You know, now ordinarily, every policy, well, <laughs> ordinarily, policies undergo some form of cost benefit analysis. You say that the whole climate change debate and the policies that are advocated in response to it seem exempt from this requirement. Why is this issue so darn special where talking about costs seems uh, out of bounds? It, it's funny that you say that most policies should be uh, under cost-benefit analysis because my sense is, I mean, I work with cost-benefit uh, analysis. That's what my organization does. We do that across a wide range of areas. And my sense is actually that very often you don't do good cost-benefit analysis. And the, and the simple answer is because when, when if, you know, if I'm a teacher and I want more funding. What do I want more funding for? Typically for teachers. If I'm a doctor, I want more money to hospitals. You know, if I'm a climate campaigner, I want more money for climate. Most people don't actually want to figure out, is this the best way to spend the money? Because there's a good chance their favorite thing is not going to be the favorite and the best outcome uh, uh, available. So, so there's a lot of reasons why people don't normally look at cost benefit. But specifically on climate, because we're talking about spending tens of percent of GDP. So, you know, literally a substantial part, much more than, for instance, we spend on health or any other thing on the planet. We're talking about spending that on climate. So surely we should make sure that we actually spend that money well. We don't. 
Let me just give you one example. So there's only one climate economist who ever got the Nobel Prize. He got it in 2018. His name is Nordhaus. He's at Yale University. He got the Nobel Prize exactly for doing cost-benefit analysis. And a substantial part of my book really just walks you through what he found. And the simple answer is he found, look, if you have a problem like climate change, you should do something about it. You should do you should cut the first tons of CO2 because it's very cheap to cut and you cut the very worst temperatures. You should probably not cut the last tons of CO2 because they'll do a huge damage and they'll not help very much. So like most other things in life, you should do some, but you shouldn't fix all of it. It's a little bit like when you look at, for instance, you know, uh, 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 traffic fatalities in the U.S. The U.S. sees about 40,000 people die on roads every year in the U.S. And one simple way of avoiding all of those deaths would be to set the speed limit at three miles per hour. If you set the speed limit at three miles an hour, nobody would die, perhaps except for boredom. right? But the fundamental point here is nobody wants to do that because you say, well, there are also benefits from going moderately fast. You can actually have a continentally integrated economy. You can go and visit your parents. You can have a job where you like it, all those kinds of things. That's why we have a reasonable debate should you have you know, 55 miles an hour or 85 miles an hour or somewhere in between. But nobody advocates three miles an hour. That's the same thing with climate change. What his, this Nobel laureate found was you should cut some, you should cut the cheap part, but you should not cut all. Actually, it turns out you should cut about 10, 15 percent. That's a good outcome that delivers benefit for each dollar spent. It doesn't cost too much and it'll actually help the future. But if you go all the way, like many climate advocates say, it actually turns out to waste in, in the order of 250 trillion dollars or more. That's a bad idea. Now, you attribute part of the alarm to the media and to politicians who, as you say, like scary stories. What do the media and politicians gain from scary stories? And actually a follow-up question would be, at what point does the scary story end up creating deaf ears? Well, uh, so clearly media get clicks and views from scaring you. I mean, nobody has a story that runs, oh, weather is gonna be about the same as what it was last year. That's just a boring story. If you can, on the other hand, say oh, everybody's going to die, that is a very click worthy story. So very clearly, every story get angled. This is not specific for climate, but climate just opens up for so many more opportunities. Uh, last year, uh, was, uh, sorry, Washington Post and many other uh, uh, papers ran a story where they said 187 million people are going to get flooded because of global warming. You know, cities are going to disappear. It's a great story. It's very, very click worthy. It turns out that it relies on the fact that saying sea levels will rise, which is absolutely true. They also assume a very high level of sea level rise. But fundamentally, the trick that does this story is they assume nobody does anything the next 80 years. So we just sit there and watch our houses get flooded. That was the point you made before. We don't adapt. Now, the very same study that shows 187 million people would get flooded if we do nothing also shows that with any reasonable assumption, it'll not be 187 million people that'll be flooded. 
it'll be 305,000 people who have to move over the next 80 years. Now, remember, that's half of, uh, of the number of people that just move out of California every year. That's not a problem. That's, you know, so they exaggerated the story 600 times to make it click worthy. And of course, politicians likewise love to be able to say, it's the end of the world. So vote for me and I'll make sure it's not the end of the world. And especially the good thing about global warming is you get to make all these promises and then somebody else have to pay down the line. So you actually get the a free ride right now. And then, of course, it's going to be much, much costlier in the future. So you also asked, at what point will this become too much? Unfortunately, I think if you, you, know, you would imagine that eventually we get uh, uh, just fed up with this sort of exaggeration. But clearly not. We've had exaggeration in a lot of different areas for a very long time. There's a wonderful uh, uh, um, uh, article from uh, 1983 where the UN tells us if we don't fix global warming and many other environmental ills by uh, uh, very soon, it'll be like a nuclear war by the year 2000. And clearly people didn't click, but they bought the magazine back then as well. And you know, we still do. You know, one thing that you point out in the book in, in a series of episodes is a media story based upon the, the kind of number like you just cited. And then you just go to another source, a research source, that explodes the entire premise of the media story. And what really stands out isn't that the media got it wrong, but it was so simple for the media to have gotten it right. And they didn't, I mean, just the bare basic levels of incompetence, uh, the, the flimsiness of the claims uh, based upon shoddy or partial research. How, and some of these come from the leading media organizations like Time Magazine. Uh, how, how could they be so incompetent? I mean, have we reached a, a context in which the alarm is so strong that the ordinary, the ordinary habits of fact-checking and you know, proper inference, well, th th those are out the window. Well, <laughs> to a certain extent, yes. I, I think there's an overwhelming sense in which if I look at something with global warming and it ends up being terrible, I must be right. If it's not, if it's actually better, I, I must be wrong and I need to go back and recheck my numbers. So, you know, uh, uh, Time magazine had a picture of the secretary general from the U.N. Uh, uh, waving out in the waters outside of Tuvalu, which is a small island nation out in the Pacific. And basically the, the message both from the secretary general and from Time magazine was these guys are going to be dead by the end of the century, or they'll essentially have to move because their entire island is going to be flooded. It's a great metaphor, and we've heard it so many times for Tuvalu and many of these other nations, uh, Micronesia and so on, that uh, sea levels rise because they're only, you know, uh, what, three, six feet above water. Uh, obviously, they're going to disappear. The problem with that argument is that there's actually people who've looked at this. So, you know, there's one guy from New Zealand, uh, a, a, a professor who's worked with lots of people from the region to actually look at this. So they've gone back to look at old uh, uh, aerial photos of these uh, of these islands and then said, well, what happens as sea levels rise? What they find is, yes, sea level rise will all of things equal make the island smaller. But 
at the same time, these islands are built up by deposited coral reefs. So as dead coral reef gets broken up in storms, it gets washed ashore. Some of it gets washed ashore and actually make the island uh, 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 higher. Remember, uh, you know, in the last uh, ice age, uh, sea levels were about three, four hundred feet. Sorry, I'm used to thinking in meters, um, 400 feet lower. Uh, so these islands have grown up over the last, uh, uh, say, 20,000 years, about 400 feet. So they grow all the time. And actually what's happened to Tuvalu and many of these other nations, actually all of them that we've studied so far, is that they've gotten bigger, not smaller. Because the accretion, the fact that you get more coral stuff on the island, outweigh the sea level rise. But the point is, if you're just a journalist, it's lazy and simple and it fits the moral narrative. Global warming is going to eradicate these people. Oh, that's terrible. We need to cut carbon emissions. But the reality is these island nations, and that's what a, a recent nature study also showed, will actually be valid, valid for human habitation for at least another century. And so far, we can't actually see why there would be a big problem. Again, we're just simply being fed a very misleading story because we only look at some parts and we don't look at any kind of counterweighing uh, arguments. You know, it's, it's no different from when you hear about the, the heat waves. Heat waves are going to kill more people. That's true. But you also need to remember that with rising temperatures, you'll have fewer cold waves. And because globally, about 17 people die from cold every time one person dies from heat. For a lot of people, a lot of places, moderate global warming, not any kind of global warming, but moderate global warming will actually be a net benefit. We forget these things because it's so easy to just go over to one corner and say, it's the end of the world. Hmm. Now, you have certainly experienced some, some hostility and even demonization in the past. I, I followed you for, for a while now. Just for your, your skepticism, which isn't your denial, uh, you know, we should say you're not you're not saying nothing is happening here. You're saying let's have a more measured response that's due cost benefit analysis. But even that has brought some aggression down upon you. Now, what I don't understand is that what you're saying, you actually should give some people a little relief. I mean, who wants to be in a state of alarm all the time? Why? Why the, why the reaction to what you represent uh, and your, your invocation of some contrary evidence into the discussion? Well, the funny thing, first of all, Mark, the funny thing is I don't come up with contrary evidence. I basically just take, take care to actually read the UN Climate Panel report. And I also say this is not just a natural science issue. It's not just a, you know, how many people die in the traffic, so we need to lower the speed limit to three miles an hour. It's also a social economic argument of saying how much will we save of lives and how much will we destroy our economy? We need to have those conversations. And lots of smart people have done that. You know, the guy just won the Nobel uh, uh, Prize for doing that exact thing. Maybe we should listen to them. But I think there is a certain sense in which if you have latched on to one way of thinking about the world, that has to be defended at any cost. Now, uh, one of the things that most people do most of the time to actually show that they care environmentally is recycling. It turns out that recycling is often 
not a very good investment. It takes up a lot of time and space and you have to have lots of different separated loads of, of garbage going out and it does very moderate benefits. So it turns out that very often, sometimes recycling is a good idea, but often it's not. That annoys a lot of people because if I've just spent 20 years of my life, you know, a, a recycling and being very careful and that's sort of the thing that's given me meaning, if I come and say, actually, it turns out that that has not been very helpful. <laughs> it sort of pulls the rug away from you and what you've been doing for the last 20 years. Not surprisingly, you get really, really annoyed to hear that. And I think there's a lot of this going on. Uh, if you think back in the 1980s, we worried a lot about uh, uh, acid rain. Now, again, acid rain was a real issue. It was vastly exaggerated. Uh, and you know, certainly, especially in Europe, in Germany, for instance, almost everybody believed that the forests were going to be gone because of acid rain by the year 2000. As your argument is, well, surely they should have been relieved to hear that that wasn't the case. And as they arrived at 2000 and saw all the forests were still there, they should certainly have realized that. But what happens is that you're basically taking away this sense of moral urgency and moral righteousness from people saying, you are actually not on the right side of history. And that, of course, pisses a lot of people off. And at the same time, it takes away that sense of, I'm doing something really worthwhile and meaningful. But I think if we're actually going to leave this planet better off, we're not doing well by just following the mob majority sense of what's right and what's wrong. We actually need to look at what will work. And as you pointed out, I'm certainly not an eye. Global warming is a real problem. I just mentioned the UN climate panel tells us it's going to be 0.22% of reduction in, in average income by 2075. That's a real significant problem. And I also propose a lot of solutions in the book. So, you know, we should have moderate carbon tax. We should focus on innovation, adaptation, geoengineering, prosperity. But I constantly say we should also be very careful that we don't end up spending more on the solution than the original problem that we're trying to solve. If you cut off your arm to cure a wrist ache, you've done a really bad deal. I, I want to get to your prescriptions because the book ends on some positive notes. Uh, but first, one quick theme that you bring out about the poor. It is an irony that you mentioned that many climate change activists are also income inequality activists, and yet their climate prescriptions will be borne heavily by the poor. Give us an example of that. So fundamentally, what has made us rich is the fact that we have access to an enormous amount of reliable and cheap energy. Remember in 1900, 93% of all energy uh, in industry in the US came from human beings. Today, that number is down to about 7%. So we have an amazing opportunity of really being able to harness mechanical movement from others, you know, First it was horses, and then eventually it was machines, typically fueled by fossil fuel. That is what has driven a lot of our wealth. The same translation, the transition needs to happen in the developing world. That's why most people are incredibly poor still around the world, and they want to be richer. Energy can do that. Now, if we can find cheap green energy, that's wonderful. Then everyone will have that. But right now, and certainly in the near future, most of that energy is going to come from fossil fuels. So when we rich Westerners come and say, no, 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 you shouldn't have coal power. I know we got rich in coal power, but you shouldn't have it. 
that's not just imperialistic. That's not just moralistic. That is denying them the best opportunity for development. And we see that in the UN climate panel scenarios. Uh, there's both one that focuses on being green and one that focuses on being fossil fuel developed. And in the fossil fuel developed world, the average person in the developing world will be about $48,000 richer per person per year in 2100 than the guy who lives in the green scenario. That is after deducting the problems from global warming. So literally, we're setting ourselves up to say, no, 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 let's make a less better world by 2100 if we focus too much on green. Okay, your prescriptions. One, what's the carbon tax? So fundamentally, any climate economist will tell you, you know, if there's a bad out there, global warming, for instance, you fix it with a tax. You get people to recognize that whenever I do something, I drive around my car, I have a slight negative impact on the future. If I pay that with a tax, I've taken that into consideration so that I don't spend too much CO2 emissions. The, the exhaust that you put out into the atmosphere, that isn't recognized by the market, right? That, that's, one of, that's one of your points here. That's a cost that is born, that the market doesn't register a tax would be a way to put that cost into the price. Yes, so everyone does the right thing. That's exactly what the market process is about. You need to know the prices of all impacts, also the things that are right now free. But what you also have to recognize is that any realistic carbon tax, so we're talking about, uh, uh, so Nordhaus, the guy who won the Nobel Prize, uh, estimates that around now we should probably have what would be equivalent of a 18 cents per gallon uh, 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 gasoline tax. So that's a moderate tax. It should slow, slowly increase up to the end of the century. It will solve a not trivial part of global warming, but it will not solve most of global warming. And also remember, of course, it requires not only the U.S. to do this, not only Europe, not only Japan, not only Australia, but every country on the planet, including China and India and everybody else. That's very difficult. We're going to get some of that right. We're not going to get it all right. And that, of course, will make the cost higher and the efficiency lower. Yeah. The, and, and this leads into your uh, a, a follow up prescription, which would be actually more more realistic. And that is bigger investment in innovative innovation research. Exactly. Fundamentally, carbon tax can work but it's not going to be the main part of the thing that will solve global warming. That is about innovation. So you're, remember, back in the 1970s, we worried a lot about most of the world would not be able to feed itself. Some people were saying, we just got to write off India. They're just, you know, they're just going to all die kind of thing. Instead of just saying, oh, that's never going to work, what actually happened was we had you know, a, a, a Nobel scientist and many others who worked on making better uh, uh, varieties of wheat and others to grow that would produce a lot more food for every acre uh, planted. And what basically happened was the green revolution. So India has gone from being a basket case to now being the world's biggest exporter of rice. How did that happen? Through innovation. So instead of telling everybody, oh my God, we're all going to die or you know, uh, stop eating so much, send some of the food down to India and the African states, innovation is what solves the problem. If you could innovate cheaper, smarter ways of doing the same thing, 
chances are you're going to do a lot better. And that's, of course, what we need to do with green energy. If we could innovate the price of green energy, and that could be solar and wind with batteries, it could also be fusion, that is the normal nuclear power, uh, sorry, fission or fusion. It could be a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, we could spend a lot more time talking about all these. There are lots of great ideas. The basic point is if we get one of these things right, if we find one technology that ends up being cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but also the Chinese and the Indians and everybody else. So through innovation, we can solve this, but we're not investing nearly enough. And that's why uh, you know, both Obama and the U.S. and back in 2015, uh, Bill Gates and many others have promised to spend significantly more on innovation, but we're not actually doing it. We need to spend a lot more. It would still be much less than what we're spending just in subsidies for solar and wind, and it would have a much greater chance of actually solving the problem. The book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. It's out with Basic Books. Bjorn Lomborg, thank you for joining us. It was wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.